Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm your host, Raed Wake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast of short, digestible episodes is intended for patients and their families and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timeless and timely topics in the areas of lung disease, severe critical illness, allergy, sleep, and infectious disease. Our goal is to help you stay informed in order to take better care of yourself and your loved ones. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Respiratory Inspirations. I'm your host, Raed Wake, the chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. My guest today is Dr. David Lang, the chairman of Allergy and Immunology, and we'll be discussing side effects and allergic reactions to drugs and vaccines. David, welcome. Thanks, Raed. It's great to be here with you. So let's uh, start with the basics. What are the common drugs that uh, people have allergic reactions to in general? So if, Rad, if you and I could look into the allergy field in our electronic medical record and look through uh, all the drugs that people are allergic to, what we would find is that most commonly these are, are antibiotics and analgesics for the most part. So among the antibiotics, the number one listed drug would be penicillin and penicillin type drugs. About 10% of the population self-report penicillin allergy. And among the analgesics, generally it's uh, aspirin and uh, what we call non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, medications such as ibuprofen or naproxen and others within that class to which there's a high rate of cross-reaction generally. That's uh, wonderful. So I've heard from you when we talked before is that like even though people are labeled to have penicillin allergy, the vast majority of those do not. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So it turns out that if we could go back in a time machine to the 70s or the 80s, you know, back then around 15% of patients who came to us with a history of self-reported penicillin allergy had positive skin tests, and we would tell them to continue to avoid penicillin, penicillin-type drugs. However, the rate of, uh, for reasons that are not fully understood, the rate of penicillin allergy has been declining, such that at this time, it's probably less than 1 in 20 people in whom we elicit positive skin tests. So the overwhelming majority of patients with self-reported penicillin allergy are needlessly avoiding penicillins. There are a few reasons for this in terms of why the overwhelming majority of patients we see in allergy and clinical immunology have negative skin tests. Uh, The first reason is that there was a reaction to a penicillin-type drug, but it was related to, for instance, a concomitant viral infection that produced a rash or it was related to a different immunologic kind of reaction that wasn't a true allergic reaction. In other words, a reaction not associated with what I'll call immunologic memory. The second reason that the skin test positive rate is so low is that even in cases where somebody was truly allergic to penicillin and had an allergic reaction in the past, with avoidance of penicillins over the years, the potential for having an allergic reaction wanes. So those people can take penicillins after a period of time without allergic reaction. The third reason is that patients have a tendency to misattribute adverse experiences or side effects as being uh, an allergy. Uh, So in those cases, the skin tests are negative as well. 
And the point is that not that people who have a history of allergy to penicillin should start taking penicillin. Um, definitely, you shouldn't do that. But it does imply that, that you would benefit from seeing a board-certified allergist to have appropriate skin testing done to see if you're in the majority group where you, you need not avoid penicillin in the future. And if I may add, that does have some significance with regards to healthcare outcomes. A number of studies now at numerous centers throughout the world have shown that when patients are delabeled, that their healthcare outcomes improve. So that if you're admitted to the hospital and you have penicillin in the allergy field of your electronic medical record, it means that you're going to receive alternative antibiotics that, are, that may be associated with more side effects and may be more likely to cause complications in terms of your management so that it's in your best healthcare interest to get this evaluated. So for uh, patients or family members who are listening to this podcast, your advice, uh, what I'm getting is, if you have a history of penicillin allergy, but you have not really been tested or confirmed, it's really in your best interest health-wise to just see an allergist and be tested to make sure that you're truly allergic or not, correct? And my understanding is that 95% of the time, it turned out to be you're not allergic. So in the times That's if you correct. turn out to be allergic, the true allergic, the 5% or 1 in 20 who are truly allergic to penicillin, what are their options? So if your skin test is positive, what that implies is that you are still at increased risk for a true allergic reaction with re-exposure to penicillin. You need to continue to avoid it. If, uh, you know, you're in the hospital, for instance, if we see a patient in the intensive care unit who has a serious infection for which a penicillin-type drug is clearly indicated and there's no equally effective alternative that can be used, we can perform a procedure called uh, drug desensitization where we introduce a, you know, a very low, low dose of penicillin and then double the dose every 15 minutes or every 30 minutes depending on the protocol and over the course of about six to eight hours we can achieve a therapeutic dose so that you can receive the drug that's required for the condition that you have and we can treat the infection after the pen and and we can induce tolerance as long as the, the antibiotic the penicillin antibiotic is continuously administered as soon as that course of treatment stops 48 hours go by, you're allergic to penicillin again, you have to continue to avoid it. So it's very important. It's not that you are desensitized, you are done. Every time you need that uh, penicillin, you have to be desensitized. And what I'm getting from you, this is not the kind of thing you do at home. It has to be done under the supervision of an allergist, preferably even in the hospital, right? You know, you don't Correct. do this as an outpatient setting. So that's you know, penicillin, which is really an example of antibiotics, which many antibiotics you know, cross-react with penicillin as well. The other drug you mentioned are, drugs you mentioned are analgesics, and I think the, the perfect example of that is aspirin, which is widely and commonly used. So tell us a little bit more about how allergy to aspirin manifests. So not infrequently, we also see patients who come to us with a, a label of aspirin allergy. It actually turns out this is not an allergy per se, it's more actually more biochemistry than allergy. This, there are several syndromes of aspirin sensitivity. A major syndrome relates to a respiratory condition called aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease, or AERD. These are patients who develop chronic sinusitis in their third or fourth decade of life. They develop nasal polyps. They develop asthma, which may become the dominant component of the syndrome in many but not all cases. 
and then after the chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps and asthma are in place, casual exposure to aspirin or an aspirin-type drug like ibuprofen or naproxen provokes a respiratory reaction that can actually be quite serious. How do we treat those? I know like that's one reason you can treat the underlying disease, but another one is I know a lot of people need aspirin also for other conditions like heart yeah. disease, etc. So, so what's so the this, approach? Yeah. So this condition was recognized in uh, 1968 by an allergist in Chicago by the name of Max Samter. In the 70s, successive day challenges with aspirin and a drug that would cross-react 100% of the time like ibuprofen. They found that patients could tolerate the challenge on day two after having a respiratory reaction on day one. So it was learned that you could induce tolerance. That allowed patients who needed aspirin for another condition like heart disease to be able to take aspirin safely. And once they did that, taking aspirin daily to perpetuate the tolerant state, what was observed was that the respiratory condition improved. So this is the major reason now that we induce tolerance or carry out what's called aspirin desensitization for patients with aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease. And uh, published data indicate as a therapeutic intervention that if you can continue to take aspirin daily to perpetuate the tolerant state for one year or longer, 87% of patients experience improvement in terms of reduced symptoms, reduced medication reliance, and reduced need for sinus surgery over time. So unlike uh, penicillin desensitization, which only specific for that hospitalization or treatment, course mm-hmm. of antibiotics, aspirin desensitization can be lifelong, you know, so that's something that's good, for, whether you're taking it for heart disease or because you have respiratory uh, symptoms. Right, right, and, and the condition itself of AERD, aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease, once better. it develops, is, is present for the rest of the patient's yeah. life. And it gets better with desensitization as well. Yes. But also aspirin cross-reacts with other than steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, correct? What's the... 100% rate of cross-reaction. So the patients with uh, AERD need to avoid not only aspirin, but all uh, aspirin-type drugs such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Acetaminophen and non-acetylated salicylate drugs like trilocate or disalcid, they can cross-react at higher dose levels, higher, higher dose ranges. So generally, we tell patients to uh, take regular strength rather than extra strength Tylenol. So I'm going to pivot from uh, talking about the drug reactions and allergies to vaccine, uh, which are kind of related but different. So as you know, a lot of vaccines out there, and we have uh, heard about vaccine reactions over time and allergic reactions in particular. But I think now with the pandemic and uh, hearing about COVID vaccine, this has got into the spotlight for a lot yeah. of our patients and families. So can you just give us context of uh, how common are allergic reactions to vaccines in general and how does the COVID vaccine fit into that uh, picture? The rate of allergic reactions to vaccine is actually quite rare. For instance, the influenza vaccine, the rate of allergic reaction is about 1.3 per million. As you mentioned, Rad, the pandemic has intensified concerns regarding risk for allergic reactions to vaccines, but vaccines remain one of the most impactful public health measures in existence. The vaccines consist of antigens that elicit a desired immune response, combined with other components of the vaccine, such as excipients, which solubilize the vaccine solution, for instance, and the allergic reaction is generally related to an excipient. In the case of the measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine, it's a gelatin 
component that accounts for allergic reactions, and for the mRNA COVID vaccines uh, produced by Pfizer or Moderna, it's polyethylene glycol that is the excipient for the J&J or Janssen vaccine. It's uh, polysorbate that's the excipient. So when we see patients who are concerned about the possibility of, of an allergic reaction to the mRNA COVID vaccine or the J&J vaccine, we have a skin test protocol that entails uh, skin testing to rule out allergy to polyethylene glycol or to polysorbate. We follow that with a challenge dose of polyethylene glycol, which you may have seen as you walk through the aisles of a Rite Aid or a CVS. It's called Miralax. Polyethylene glycol is a laxative. Our challenge dose is not enough to provoke a pharmacologic effect. It's just a, a small amount. But if you have undergone a colonoscopy with a bowel prep and you've tolerated that bowel prep, generally these contain polyethylene glycol, it's extremely unlikely that you'll have an allergic reaction to the mRNA COVID vaccines. That's great. I think you mentioned the rate of reaction for influenza is like 1.3 per million. Yeah, there, the, the there, was, some, yeah, like there was some concern about this because the reaction rate was a bit higher. It's about 2.5 per million for Pfizer and 11 per million for the Moderna. So it's a bit higher, but still it's, it's extremely, extremely rare. Yeah. We do have some patients, I should add, who have allergic or anaphylactic potential to polyethylene glycol or to polysorbates. We have such patients, but they're, they're quite rare. Yeah, uh, David, related to um, vaccine reactions, I know everybody thinks they're having an allergic reaction, but we can react in vaccines in different ways. It's not all an allergic reaction, true allergic reaction. Can you yeah, describe that's right. that yeah. to us? Yeah. So it turns out that when we feel quote-unquote sick and we have a, like a viral illness, the fever, chills, muscle aches, that's our immune system revving up to fight the infection. So when you get a vaccine, which is inducing an immune response to the antigens that have been administered, the feeling that people get within the first 36 hours of fatigue, low-grade fever, muscle aches, that's your body revving up in response to the vaccine. That's not necessarily an allergic reaction to the vaccine. Yeah, that's very important to tell because these are common. You know, responding to the vaccine is common, but the allergic re true allergic reactions yeah. are rare. Yeah, when I recommend a vaccine for a patient, I usually tell them just what I've said here, that, that you know, if you feel this way in the first 36 hours, it, you shouldn't regard it as, a, as an allergic reaction. All right, thank you for clarifying that. So let me try to maybe summarize to our audience with some uh, key takeaway points. When it comes to drug allergies, the most common classes are antibiotics and pain medications. And the classic antibiotic is penicillin. And the best way to approach that is to recognize that most, the vast majority, like 95% or more of those who think they have allergy to penicillin, they actually do not. And the best way is to really be seen by an allergist to determine that because that has really health implications. For the few who truly have penicillin allergy, the approach is to uh, skin test them and then try to desensitize them uh, if they need penicillin for a particular hospitalization. Aspirin really uh, can affect people in multiple ways. Uh, it could be skin rash, but I think the more common one is airway-induced uh, symptoms, like the airway 
disease related to aspirin. And that can be also uh, desensitized. You cannot test for it, but you can clinically diagnose it and you can uh, test for it. So the advice there, again, is to see your allergist and see if that can help with your symptoms, but also if you need the drug for other indications like, like heart disease. When it comes to vaccines, vaccines remain safe. The allergic reactions are very rare, but they can be easily tested for because we know what the reactions are for. Usually it's one component of the vaccine that we know the people are allergic to and we can test them to make sure they can be safe or not. Anything else you'd like to add, David? It's been great being here with you, Red. All right. Thank, thank you, you, David. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening today to our uh, episode of uh, Respiratory Inspirations. Again, this is your host, Rai Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. And my guest today was Dr. David Lang, the chair of allergy and immunology at the Cleveland Clinic. And we discussed allergic reactions to drugs and vaccines. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Inspirations. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic Lungs or follow me at Triadwake MD. Thank you.